David Solomon. Podcasts on topics ranging from Jewish history and the Bible to Jewish mysticism, philosophy and thought. To find out about David's talks, books and more, visit davidsolomon.online. And now, here's the lecture. We're starting a new uh, series and I thought I would focus on a theme rather than a chronological period. So we're combining uh, the desire of some people to have tachlis history with the desire of some people to be a little bit more uh, perhaps reflective on what the implications of some aspects of history are for us today. And I could think of no better groundwork for that concept than to look at the scandalous topic of prophecy and the rise of the prophetic, what we call the prophetic tradition. And I've got to tell you that the words prophetic tradition, even to me, sound a little bit banal. They sound a little bit boring. They do. Don't look at me like that. They do. Prophetic tradition. It sounds all very religious and so on. And people sometimes forget that this is nothing short of a major world thought revolution that is still really in play in which the Jewish people sit at the vortex of producing this thought revolution and are ultimately historically still responsible for it. This series is going to be for people that are not scared of two things. If you're scared of these two things, then you'll need to think about uh, how you want to spend Wednesday evening being scared or avoiding it, but scared of, not scared of two things. One is the fact that the Jewish people matter in the world. I'm not talking now about AJN letter writing style defense mechanisms of the existence of the Jewish people. I'm talking about a proactive existential perspective on the world where the Jewish people matter, not merely in terms of their own survival, but in terms of their objectives and their goals and their purpose and their raison d'etre, their entire continuum in the world. What is it for? What are we doing this for? We're not doing it simply because we plow, our parents ploughed X amount of money into our Jewish education we're not doing it because we would feel embarrassed to announce to our neighbours that we're suddenly a goy. Have you tried that, by the way? <laughs> it doesn't work. We do, in fact, have a purpose in the world according to the themes that we're going to be look at. Now, agree or disagree with those themes, but you can't be scared of those themes if we're going to talk about what we're going to talk about. The second thing you can't be scared of is the sometimes devastating realization that we are living all these things all over again and that in fact what people are concerned with over two and a half thousand years ago is still very much at the crux of what angsts us today and what our traditions and our continuum is telling us about how we are to negotiate the challenges to the Jewish world today. 
I'm not going to give you doom and gloom, but I'm also not going to give you full rays of sunshine. There is light and shade in every generation of Jewish history, but ours has particular challenges, and those challenges seem to resonate with the material I'm talking about. Have I confused you enough yet? We good? You're never confused. You sometimes I, I use you as a yardstick about whether or not I'm confused. But I'm going to draw a line just to anchor ourselves chronologically. Let me just come back to that last point. Let me, no, no, I haven't finished yet. And because some people just walked in. And really this is what inspired me to go deeper into this material. Now, material with which you are undoubtedly... I look around the room, I know people are familiar with this material. And when I start talking about it, you're going to go, oh, I'm familiar with that material. I know that. Why am I sitting here? It's very clear. It's not me. It's not me. It is a reality that all people, but particularly us, the continuum of the Jewish people in the world... And I can say that because I'm standing ultimately in the basement of a shul. Is that we struggle time and time again with the concept of power. We struggle with power. Most of Jewish history we have spent disempowered. And the people we're going to talk about are in many ways telling us that the reason that that is so is because when we have power, we abuse it. Oh, I can see where this is going, say some of you internally, but not necessarily. There's light and shade in everything. But power is at the source of the whole of humanity's struggle with its objectives, the distribution of power and the abuse of power. But ultimately, the message of the Hebrew Bible, overriding all of this, is that there's actually only one power in the world. And that is the power of whoever made this universe. And what do they want from us? So... I'll hold back from the pedestal. I'm not going to climb up on it every five minutes. I just need us to realize if you're scared of those concepts, negotiating them in a very confronting way. Because we read Nevi'im all the time. We read Nevi'im all the time, but we don't read them. Otherwise, the letters to the AJN would be very different. <laughs> Thank you. On this timeline, I'm going to look pretty much... Look, I'm going to put Bayit Rishon. I'm going to put Bayit Rishon so you have an overall perspective. Put your hand... See, I've lost someone already. Put your hand up if you know what I mean when I say Bayit Rishon. This is a quick audience test, so I know what level I'm speaking. Put your hand up if you know what I mean when I say the words... The period is Bayit Rishon. Okay, so for the sake of... I'm going to spend one minute. Bayit Rishon is the way we say in Jewish history, in Hebrew. It literally means... Bayit means house. Rishon means first. 
In the times of the temple in Jerusalem, they didn't call it the temple. They called it the house of God. And there was a first house of God and there was a second house of God. The first house of God is a period that we know as the first temple. The first temple period is from approx. Minus 1,000 to around minus 500. That includes its destruction and the exile that followed it. But the basic framework as a 500 year chunk is here. Everybody follow? The critical period that we're going to look at chronologically, so we know exactly where we are in context, this absolutely vital vortex of Jewish history that is critical for us to understand what prophecy is and what it's got to do with today and then, the really critical period is from round about minus 750 to about uh, minus, fi or minus 580. So it's really almost just 140, 150-year period here in which we affected a thought revolution. Because as I've mentioned this before, as I've mentioned before, uh, many historians realise that the world globally went through a kind of a revolution, a shift in consciousness round about here in around minus 500. This was a synchronicitous kind of shift all around the world. This was the golden age of Greek philosophy. This is the age of the Buddha. This is the age of Zoroaster. There are many, many different shifts in thinking. And the obvious question is, uh, you know, Jewish people have always prided themselves of being kind of at the forefront of international thought movements. Where is their thought revolution? Where is their shift in consciousness? And the reality is, is that we had already had it. We'd had it a couple of centuries prior. And that's what we're going to zone in on tonight. At first, I thought, oh, a four-part course on the rise of prophecy in the age of power. Reformers, visionaries, agitators. Obviously, four parts. I'll start with the first three will be the three big daddy prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. And then in the last one, we'll fill in the gaps. And then I realized, of course, at about two o'clock this afternoon, there's no way that was going to work. And so I restructured it completely and I'm going to deal with it chronologically. Because then we can really get to terms with the thematics underlying what was behind this, the rise of this phenomenal institution. A lot of background here tonight. As of next week, we'll be able to get straight into it. I'm just backgrounding a lot so everybody can follow me, including myself. But before we can talk about that, we have to set the historical setting of what's going on. What is going on? What is going on if you were to open the time machine and you step out and you are in the land of Israel, you're in the Middle East, and it's around about the year minus 750? What's going on? Well, your first question will be, where am I? Where in the Middle East is going to make a very big difference to what's going on. But let's say you are in <laughs> the capital city of a kingdom. Don't call out. You are in the capital city of a an entity called the Kingdom of Israel. 
Minus 750. That's well over, that's nearly 2,800 years ago. What is that? Don't call out. What is that capital city? Put your hand up if you know what that capital city is. You're in the capital city of an entity called the Kingdom of Israel. Standing there, nice streets, people wandering around. Everyone looks happy. Mostly everyone. What's the city? Oh, not calling out is an issue. So you think Jerusalem? Not Hebron? No, I'm getting guesses. Put your hand up if you know. Some of you, I know that some of you are sitting here going, oh, I know this, but I'm too embarrassed to put my hand up. Where is it? Is it Exactly. It is, of course, Samaria, which we know in Hebrew as Shomron. And Samaria is smack in the middle of that kingdom, at the apex of the Jezreel Valley, which is kind of like this majorly fertile area. Now, in order to understand what Samaria is and why today Samaria is kind of like an archaeological theme park rather than an actual place, we just go back here. And I want to come back to what I spoke about at the beginning. I have to watch the time. We have a lot to talk about tonight and it will be very easy for me to lose time unless I get right into it. I want to talk about what's happened in the last couple of centuries that has suddenly brought about this reality that you're standing in a capital city called Samaria in the Jezreel Valley. What is Samaria? Who built that thing? And what's going on anyway? And some of you will be very familiar with this material, but I'm just going to cover it very quickly so we can understand exactly what's going on. Back here, back here, A new culture, a Semitic culture, with a particular monotheistic perspective on the world. I'll discuss what monotheism is in a moment, for those of you who have forgotten. Is building a society and a culture in the Levant, in an area that we now know as the land of Israel. It is a rough coalescence of 12 clans or tribes that ascribe to a common mythological origin story. That is, several generations prior, they actually were a subclass of Egypt, but they got escape velocity from that, and after a few wanderings, invaded this land, and have been settling it. This particular people has no central leadership. There is no central administration. There is no government. There is no king. These people have a tripartite structure of power. You know, those of you who've studied political theory will be aware, Montesquieu, Tocqueville, all these famous 18th century, 19th century theorists of political power talk about the separation of powers. When we talk now about Western 
political societies, we talk about the separation of power. The executive is separate from the, from the uh, congressional, which is separate from justice, which is separate from the... I mean, you know, there's a separation of powers. The separation of powers in ancient Israel were threefold. You had the leader. And the leader was only ever an ad hoc arrangement. If there was a crisis, someone would lead, generally in a military sense, and then retire. That institution during the period of conquest was basically taken by a role which was known as the chauffette, was a judge. This person would be in charge effectively of the justice system, of the application of law. At times, this person might adopt one, of the, uh, one or two of the other roles of power, but that was their main preoccupation, civil administration effectively, but not at the level of centralization or of dynasty. The second division of power, of authority rather than power, was what we call the kahuna, that is the priesthood. The priesthood had total authority effectively in matters of religion. They ran the temples, they ran all the rites of worship, all the special days, the festivals, the sacrificial cults, all of your big questions about milk spoons, inflation cups, they were dealing with all that, right? Am I leprous? Am I cool? Am I clean? Am I unclean? Can I give a sacrifice? Do I have to go and give this to the Levite or the priest? Do I have to bring a sacrifice? What do I have to do? Where's God? I want to ask him a question. What's the answer? Thank you very much. And then you had a third institution that can, was so unique to the Jewish people that as soon as you realize what it is, you realize that only we could have come up with this. And that is what we call the wild card. And the wild card was a person that we call a Navi, a prophet. The prophets, and really prophet is a very, very, very small approximation of the meaning of the Hebrew term Navi. Because Navi can mean quite a number of things. It can mean I'm prophesying about things that are going to happen, but it is also an effective description of someone who is talking about the present and conveying to the population the words of God. What made the Navi a total wild card is that Navi existed outside the structures of regular administration or the priesthood and saw themselves as equal to the rulers so that with respect they could go to kings and priests and say to them, you are wrong. You are not doing things in the right way. You are not pleasing God. God is pissed off with you. You have morally failed. And this wasn't someone just, you know, heckling from the back of an audience, you've morally failed. This is someone that if they walked in the room, kings and priests would have to listen to. So we have this three... Now, in some cases, several roles were combined. Some of the earlier Shoftim were also Nevi'im. Some priests were Nevi'im. Some kings were Nevi'im. 
But overall, they were three separate structures. To understand Bayit Rishon and its power struggles is to understand this three-way division that underlines basically the whole of the First Temple period. That is the big power struggle for authority within the Jewish people, within the people of Israel. Yep, quick question. Ah, so, 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 very good question. Very good question. The quick answer is, in the case of, well, let, let me come back to and answer that in a second, because I will answer it in the course. I just one more minute of explaining what this is, and I think that will answer it. It's a very good question. By the time you get to round about minus 1,000, and those of you who are familiar with the history will know that we could make an entirely different lecture series just on that preceding period as to how this came about. But round about the time you get to minus 1,000, that concept of the shofet, of the judge, has evolved now into that of a king. These disparate tribes have formed a confederacy which is a united kingdom. The first leader of that united kingdom was, of course, Saul, of the tribe of Benjamin. He becomes the first king, not so successful, and then he is overtaken by King David, this young Judean shepherd boy who goes on to hold his own military and so on, and obviously simply uh, grows and grows and takes over power after Saul buys the big one at the Battle of Gilboa. David's massive king establishes a dynasty for him and his descendants based in his newly acquired capital of Jerusalem. David captures Jerusalem, brings the spiritual center of the Jewish people, the Ark of the Covenant, there to make it not only a political capital, but also a religious capital. And David's son, Shlomo HaMelech, goes on to build this temple. Yep, that really is the establishment of a concrete presence, but entity uh, more or less complete in configuration. Obviously, we could go into David's career quite extensively just on the level of prophecy and how David himself was subject of this wild card arrangement with different prophets. The prophet was not, by the way, someone who hung around to be a political advisor. They would walk into the building and speak directly to the king at will whenever there was a moral problem. And moral problems there were. When Shlomo HaMelech died, and as you know, here's the temple. When Shlomo HaMelech died, this kingdom became split. Ten of the tribes forming the kingdom in the north, called the kingdom of Israel. And two of the tribes in the south, Judah and Benjamin, forming the kingdom of Judah. If we land in Samaria in minus 750, it means that we are in the capital of the northern kingdom, which had been established by one of the northern kings. And obviously, how did you become king in the north? King in the south, we know how that happened. How do you become king in the south? You're born into the Davidic household. You're a son or a grandson or a nephew. You are the next in line to become king. 
according to the Davidic program. The southern kingdom of Judah was much more stable politically because people knew who was going to be king. In the northern kingdom, it was mostly by violent assassination. If you thought that being king was a good idea, you wake up one morning, probably a Monday, you find the king, you stab them, and if enough people support you, you will be king by Tuesday, and but probably by Wednesday, someone else will be trying to get rid of you. It took quite a few generations before the northern kingdom could even establish a kind of a dynasty, the stability of a dynasty, but most dynasties in the northern kingdom are only lasting maximum four generations before that all implodes again. The first dynasty to become properly established in the northern kingdom, I know this is complex, but follow me because it's important, is the house of Omri. The house of Omri, by the way, I just, just let me make this point because I can tell some of you are thinking this internally and I just want to address it. And I haven't forgotten your question. This is not the Book of Mormon. <laughs> you understand? This history is not something that people are plucking out of their tuchas, with all due respect to the Book of Mormon. I'm not saying that you can't believe the Book of Mormon if you want to, but it's not really backed up by anything. When we talk about the House of Omri, when we talk about the Northern Kingdom, we are talking about events that are corroborated in Neo-Assyrian and Egyptian chronicles. These guys are known historical entities. We are an objective historical presence in the world. This is our history. And the people that are going through this are not so dissimilar to us. Omri establishes a dynasty... But Omri's dynasty, powerful and stable though it is, is awful. And it's awful for one basic reason. Well, it's awful for several reasons, but I'm going to talk about a couple of the main ones. First of all, you have to realize that the northern kings found it intolerable to have a situation after the split of the kingdom, to have a situation where people were still going to Jerusalem for their spiritual jollies. That was untenable. So the kings of the northern kingdom set up their own spiritual religious centers. Everybody follow? At which subjects of the northern kingdom of Israel would worship so that they wouldn't cross the border to Jerusalem and join in with the southern kings in trying to recapture the northern kingdom. Those two centres were famously at Dan in the north and Bethel in the south. What was at those religious centres? What fabulous icons of Judaism were placed at these centres that the people would go and worship the God of Israel through? Put up your hand, don't call out. Put up your hand if you know. Very good. I know that some of you know. I know you know. There were, they placed at Dun and Bet El, they of course placed a golden calf. At, 
Dunham, but El, you would go, and you weren't worshipping the golden calf per se, you were worshipping the God of Israel through the representation of the golden calf. This is Apicursus on crack, on the one hand. On the other, it's kind of interesting because it's Avodazara, it's idol worship, but it's Jewish idol worship. Let's do a golden calf thing. The division, and those of you who are sitting going, ah, what do I need to know about how people are worshipping golden calves in the times of the Bible? What do I need to know about the fact that there's a split kingdom? There's not a split kingdom today. Oh, really? Oh, really? I'm not talking about that split kingdom. I'm talking about the fact that it's not entirely clear that Israel today will stay as a single state. There's a great possibility, even putting aside the Palestinian problem, there are a number of people who are calling for a kind of division between the hardcore religious concept of Israel and the more kind of secular, hey, you know, we're kind of more into other things. Israel, that would be more represented by Tel Aviv. Tel Aviv is Samaria. And Jerusalem, as it always has been, is Jerusalem. Jerusalem for 3,000 years has been a lot frumer than anywhere else, except maybe Melbourne. <laughs> These kinds of divisions can be understood by us. So imagine if Tel Aviv and Gush Dan created its own state. And in that they had a state religion that was Judaism, but it was Judaism through kind of, you know, a pasta machine. And then... In Jerusalem, they're holding on to the temple and they've got the whole authentic thing and God forbid any representations of God and we've got the Ark of the Covenant and God is invisible and has no image and we have the Ten Commandments and that's it. These divisions were very present then religiously as well as ethically. But here's the problem. The problem is that the House of Omri were opening themselves up to neighbours in the north and elsewhere who were introducing new ideas about gods. And here I need to take a minute. All of these background minutes you'll appreciate because we haven't even really started yet, but I do need to background this so you understand where and when we're talking. Because there's a point I've been making for quite a long time now, but I've never really made it properly. And I'm looking around this room and I'm going, now's the time to make it properly. Because you're all looking at me going, what on earth is he going to say? What's he going to talk about? It is this. Some of you will not agree with what I'm about to say. That's only because you haven't thought about it enough. I don't mean to sound arrogant. I'm not necessarily right, but I think I am. And it's important for us to understand. Because it's difficult to understand. But important. First of all, let me just say this. There are metaphysical powers in the world. They can be harnessed. This is not necessarily ooga booga. Science doesn't necessarily understand how this happens. Science doesn't even necessarily acknowledge that this happens. But with all of our modern sceptical 21st century perspectives, Historians know deep down, and so do other people, that metaphysical powers can be harnessed. 
We don't know whether that is a product of the human dimension. I'm not saying that these gods exist in reality. But it would appear that metaphysical powers can be harnessed. If you decide today to identify with some obscure god, and you decide to make a big enough sacrifice to that god, whatever that might mean, and you decide that you are going to elicit the power that that god gives you and dedicate your life to that god, you will have powers. People have proven this. Many, many, many shifts in religious thought over many generations of human history have shown that political shifts and religious shifts go hand in hand. We've seen this again and again. Think of a new God, start a new religion, throw yourself into it completely, manifest it, and you will have its powers. There is a relationship, however, between power, the power of what we might call idolatry, and social injustice. There's a relationship between the worship of idols and social injustice. I have had a lot of people come at me over the years for making that statement, and once again, I'm just going to spend half a minute trying to explain it. And if you disagree with it, I'd be very, very happy to hear. Because I'd love you to help me develop this as an understanding. Because I think this is the underpinning of the whole of the project of the Nevi'im. You see, when we talk about God in the, Hebrew, in the Hebraic perspective... We're not talking about a God who is more powerful than other gods. This is the pagan mindset. There are a number of different gods and metaphysical entities and they have powers and they can give you powers. Our God happens to be the biggest and most powerful of all of them. The daddy God. Or in some cases the mummy God. But the Hebraic perspective is that that's all nonsense. There is only one God. And it's the God of the everything. It's one and it's infinite. If you worship an idol, you are entering into a contract this is very important for the pagan mindset. It's still alive today in various parts of the world. We're certainly alive in the ancient world, you know, even as, as late as the Roman Empire. This is how paganism was understood. You enter into a contract with the God that you choose to identify with among a pantheon of gods. And in return for rituals and sacrifices and various forms of worship, that God will grant you conditions that you seek wealth good agricultural cycle love happiness children whatever it is you're seeking you do the exercise of the sacrifice and the rituals to the way that that god's priests want you to do it and things will happen to you it is contractual 
That is the way in which power was understood, divine power was understood, and it would appear to us that that, to a large extent, was pretty much the way power and divine influence was perceived even within Israel itself. And not just even within the northern kingdom, but even in the southern kingdom. Judaism had not got escape velocity yet from the idea that God is effectively a contractual entity. Now, I could spend a lot more on that, but I'm not going to move on. We also need to understand as a historical background. This is unbelievable. I've been utterly irresponsible. Watch this. I've got to move really fast now, so put your seatbelt on, because I've got to move us here fast, because otherwise I will not discuss what I need to discuss. haven't even started yet. The Omri dynasty became very, very corrupt. They introduced other gods, which went hand in hand with social injustice. The point I was making is the social injustice is to do with power. The worship of idols to do with power. Gods give you the justification by which you can exploit other people without moral concern because you are right, because you have the God on your side. The House of Omri came crashing down four generations later based on a figure who started a new dynasty, a new house in the north, also mentioned in, on obelisks and stellas and other chronicle material, right through the Middle East, a guy called Yehu. Yehu was, um, I mean, possibly uh, the best description of Yehu is he was a psychopathic killer. He basically met, killed everyone he met. But he effected this massive political revolution. He Seriously, he killed everyone he met. He killed the king of Israel. He killed the king of Judah. He killed 400 prophets of Baal. He killed this. He killed that. He effectively wiped out the whole of the Baalist influence in the northern kingdom. But what subsequently followed was that they then reverted to the older type golden calf Jewish idol worship. But nevertheless, it was still a problem that this desire to have power contractual relationships with gods was an unending temptation, cultural temptation for people in the northern kingdom. After four generations, who's sitting on, well, shortly after Yehu, Yehu's grandson, great-grandson is sitting on the throne for a very, very long extended period of time. He's a very important king in the middle of the minus 700s, and that is Jeroboam Yeroboam the second named Yeroboam the second to show you how the Yehu dynasty was going back to the original northern kingdom kings the first of whom was called Jeroboam the first this was a return to the authentic northern kingdom of Israel idol worship and social corruption Jeroboam's sitting on the throne for well over 40 years was a period of incredible economic and political stability in the northern kingdom. The prophets did not arise at a time when things were going hard. They arose at a time when things were actually going extremely well. By the way, just because I didn't mention it, just so that people understand, and this, hopefully this will highlight the point, the main wildcard prophet that is fighting the institution 
of the kingship's corruption in the northern kingdom during the time of the house of Omri, before the Yehu revolution, during the time of Omri, was of course the most famous prophet of the whole of Tanakh, except that he doesn't have his own book, Eliyahu. So Elijah is here, but Elijah is a different sort of man of God. Elijah is someone who is uttering the words of God. He is consumed with divine zeal, but he's not calling for a major shift in consciousness. He's tackling kings like Ahav and his wife, Queen Jezebel, and so on, on social injustice and moral corruption, but he's not calling for this revolution in the way we have understood the nature of God for hundreds of years. He's simply a righteous conduit of the word of God. The type of prophet that's going to arise in the times of Jeroboam II is a very, very different type of prophet. This is the beginning of what we're going to call literary prophecy. And literary prophecy is going to go on and change the world. And it starts with a very, very humble dude. A farmer. Round about here. Actually, he starts his book by saying that really he's starting to... He, he's starting to get involved during the career of Jeroboam II. Uh, two years, he says, two years before the earthquake. Now, the earthquake. The earthquake is not a small thing. There was, in minus 760, there was a ginormous earthquake in the Middle East. Its epicenter, they estimate, was probably around about maybe 200 miles north of Israel, but it was like an 8.5 earthquake. It was massive. It devastated the entire region. All of this, apart from being mentioned in the Bible and in other places, archaeologists, of course, have crawled all over this and confirmed. This was not an ordinary earthquake. This is what they call kind of like a one in five millennia earthquake that disrupted everything. Amazingly... <laughs> I'm not going into this, but amazingly, the year minus 760 happens to be, in the Hebrew calendar, exactly the year 3000. It's kind of halfway through Jewish history. And boom, this massive earthquake. This earthquake has considerable effect, particularly in the southern kingdom politically. It actually affects political changes. This young farmer comes from Judah, comes from a town still around, place, well, they've re-established a settlement there, a place called Tekoa. Who's been to Tekoa? You've been to Tekoa. This guy is a simple Judean farmer who is told by God to go not to his own kingdom, but to the kingdom in the north. Sounds like Game of Thrones. Go to the kingdom in the north and give them some musr. Give them some moral castigation. And this farmer wanders into the northern kingdom 
and starts eloquently, extremely eloquently, in very, very high poetic tone, starts explaining to people why God's not happy. This farmer's name, of course, the first, really, of the great literary prophets whose career and message is stunning in sublime, is, of course, not, no, not Isaiah. Sorry, did someone say? No, it's not Isaiah. Isaiah was not a simple farmer. Isaiah was born into the royal family. Isaiah was... Not a simple fun. No, no, no. Jeremiah is much later. Jeremiah is 150 years later. Not Elisha. Elisha is before. Elisha is a student of Elijah. This is a simple farmer who starts the whole thing. And not only that, he uttered the famous words when they told him to bog off and go back to Judah and he can prophesy there. They like hearing that sort of thing in Judah. We don't want to hear it here. He was told... I'm not a prophet, I'm not the son of a prophet, but in fact he was a big prophet, but he was a very, very humble man. He says, I'm just a farmer. God told me to come here and start telling you guys this stuff. His name was Amos. And Amos Koa turns up and he starts telling the people this. Okay, I've got 12 minutes left. That's enough to cover him and someone else now that we've backgrounded it. I, I can't put it more eloquently than the prophet Amos himself puts it. But it's basically like this. What do you think is going on? You can see that all of your geopolitical machinations of power, you're the kingdom of Israel, so your leaders are enjoying conquests, economic good times, trade. Now before we even deal with what's happening internally in the Kingdom of Israel, have a look at the nations around you. What are they doing? And what you'll see is that they are all guilty of horrendous social practices and war crimes. It talks about war crimes. However, God is the God of all nations. And he will demand justice from all of those nations. Oh, what's the massive implication for you then? What's the implication for the people of Israel that God is demanding justice from all nations? The massive implication is, you're not so special. You have a relationship with the divine. It does not put you above the demands of social justice. God is 
universal. That is the first time really that the concept of monotheism is redefined as a universal demand. It's not just that the God of Israel is the powerful God. It's not even just that the God of Israel is the only God. The God of Israel is the only God and the God of all nations and therefore demands justice from humanity. And as far as Israel and Judah is concerned, well, certainly as far as Israel is concerned, because Amos is prophesying in the kingdom of Israel, on three sins, says God, I could maybe let it go. The commentators, he doesn't tell us what the three sins are. The commentators simply assume that God is talking about um, idol worship, murder and sexual immorality. I could possibly let that go, says God. But on the fourth, I will not. What is the fourth, says Amos? All these big war crimes, all these big geopolitical abuses. What has the kingdom of Israel done? Because this is not mentioned in relation to any of the other kingdoms Amos begins talking about. But what is the fourth thing? Al Mikram Bakesif Tzadik Because they sell the righteous person for money and the poor man for a pair of shoes. It is the exploitation of the underprivileged and innocent people of a society for your economic gains. The entire echelon of the economic rulers of the entire society were becoming fat and wealthy at the expense of social justice. That is the massive crime that causes God to intervene through prophecy in order to enunciate God's universalism. But what the people really should be doing is pursuing the one thing, the one thing, the one thing God needs in a society. Only one thing. This is a massive clarification. What is the one thing that God is requiring in a society? Justice. Tzedek and Mishpat. That's the famous line that Amos offers. Because he says there's still a chance. Start applying justice properly where everybody has equal representation before the law. And so your society is effectively just. There's a fair playing ground legally for everybody. No one's getting exploited at the whim of anyone else. Vigal kamayim mishpat. And let justice roll like water. His idea was the full implementation of the just society. Now, 
there's a lot more we could say about Amos because Amos, as part of the prophetic push, as part of the prophetic push, Amos is foreseeing the possibility of an impending disaster for the kingdom of Israel. That impending disaster is going to come in the form of the expanding and unstoppable Neo-Assyrian Empire. Under rulers such as Tiglat Pileser III. Mass, these are, these are guys who are striding the stage of world history as massive conquerors. Who do you think does that, says Amos? It's God. Nations, empires, world conquerors are only given power by God. And they can come or not. That depends on you. There is still a chance, says Amos to the Northern Kingdom, that you could actually correct things. But whether you do or not, that's not up to me, but I'm here to tell you. I'm foreseeing several types of destruction. Destruction by locusts, destruction by fire, these could be allegoric. But God turns around and says, no, no, no. Well, Amos goes to Bet-El to confront the priests of the calf. And he meets there a priest called Amatsya. And that's Amatsya tells him, look, in the name of the king, get lost. Go to Judah. We don't want to hear your stuff here. This is government property. Get out. Go back to Judah. And Amos turns around and says to him, if that's the attitude to this arrogant priest, if that's the attitude, then in, within one year, your wife will be playing the harlot in the street. Your sons will be dead from war. And you yourself will die in a foreign land. And the kingdom of Israel will be no more. God, the encounter with Amatsya is a turning point for Amos in which he then launches into the inevitability of the destruction and the restoration. This is already back here in the 750s. We're not at that point yet. But that is the beginning of the, of, of, of the prophecy of Israel's insight into the connection between the moral and ethical behavior of the society and its inevitable historical outcomes. The other person that I want to talk about tonight but that dovetails into the career of Amos and takes us one step further. Amos is the first to really raise this idea that God is universal. God is the God. I mean, seriously, these are shifting perceptions in our concept of God. Our concept of God has evolved throughout history. It wasn't always the same thing. We have a very, what we regard now as a pretty sophisticated concept of God. Everyone's walking around going, I have a very sophisticated concept of God. But it is the result of spiritual evolution over millennia. And Amos is a big shift in that. But the really big shift is pushed by someone who's very, very similar in time, just fractionally later. 
And that is a guy who didn't come from the southern kingdom. He is, in fact, born in the northern kingdom. And he gets to adulthood, and he becomes a bit of a holy man. He doesn't know if he's going to be a prophet, because how do you become a prophet? You can't become a prophet. God chooses you. A king, you become a king by being born into the family. A priest, you're born into the right family. You've got to be a family of priests, and then you've got to be in the right family politically in the priesthood, and you could possibly rise to be the high priest. But a prophet is complete wild card. Nevertheless, some people like that lifestyle, so even before God zaps them with the prophecy bug, they're still living a fairly holy life. And this man is living a holy life. And then he's told by God the strangest thing that any holy man has ever been told by God in the history of the world. He is told, because it was Avram Yeshua Heschel, this is how you understand this, who said, a prophet is not a microphone. A prophet is a person. And if you are called upon by God to exemplify the word of God in your life, you live your message. And this man, whose name is Hoshea, was told by God, who knows what he was told by God, Put your hand up if you know what I'm about to say. An extremely strange thing. I want you to find, says God, the most promiscuous woman you can find. The commentators and sages of Israel go to some quite graphic length to explain just what that meant. I'm not going to do that here. A massively promiscuous woman. And I want you to find her and marry her. And of course he does this. And they have three children. And the first child, God tells Hoshea to call the first child Yisrael, Jezreel. Because in the Jezreel Valley is where I will break the northern kingdom. Second child is a daughter. He said, call the daughter Loruhama, not mercied. Can you imagine? Imagine going to enroll a kid at Bethrifko Yavna going, what's your name? Oh, not mercied. These people were hardcore. They called their children these names. That's a very strange name. Where's that name from? Oh, my father called me that because the people of Israel have lost mercy. And the third son you're going, the third child, the second son, the third child, you're going, when it comes along, God says, you're going to call that child, it's devastating, you're going to call that child, Lo'ami, not my people. She then leaves him, and she goes off and wanders off with other lovers, he has to go and find her, and buy her back from some pimp, and then resettle her back in the house and sits down and says, oh, you know, we're going to try and rebuild our relationship. We're not going to actually be intimate for a little while. You're just going to sit here and see how things go because I've invested so much heartache in this that I can't do this anymore. And of course, the whole life of Hosea is an allegory for the message that God is giving him about God's relationship with the people of Israel. 
It's very, very simple. I'm offering you the ultimate, says God. You don't even have to have a king. You don't have to have power structures. Just have a just society. That's all you need and everything will be taken care of. But all you do is you go after foreign gulfs, you pursue power, you abuse your economic structures and your systems, you exploit the underprivileged and the oppressed in order to gain more and more wealth and kavod. It's all you're doing. You're not caring about each other. And why is that, says Hosea? Why do you feel you can do that? I mean, let's face it. Let's face it. On the surface, it's a very simple equation. Ah, we're worshipping idols, but things are going well. So our contract with the idols is working. And precisely because it's working, it's precisely why you don't see that your entire foundation is corrupt. And what is at the heart of your corruption is your very concept of God. You think, you think that God wants you to be religious. You think that God wants you to be ritual, to offer sacrifices so that God will give you the conditions that you want. But, says Hosea, Ki chesed chafatzti velozavach I want kindness, not sacrifice. Vedat Elohim me'olot. And I want knowledge of God over burnt offerings. I don't want your sacrifices. In fact, says Hosea, in one of the most mind-blowing prophecies of the whole of the Bible, because sitting in the 8th century BCE, how could he have known this? There will be many, many years, says Hosea, where you will be without a king and without a prophet and without a priest. There will be huge stretches of Jewish history where that will be the case. And you will need to find something else to replace your desire for a relationship, because remember the whole of Hosea's message is embedded in this concept of relationship with God. And that, of course, will be the pure, authentic confessions of your lips coming from your heart about God. I don't want sacrifices. I want justice. I want righteousness. And if you can do that, then the whole of nature will change itself in order to accommodate you. The big shift that happens in Hosea is the realization that not only is God the God, universal God, but that there's only one thing you can do in arrangement with the universal God. There's only one thing a universal God can ask. The only thing a universal God can ask is or demand is that you behave in a way that is ethical and moral to each other. This is the big transformation of the pagan mindset into ethical monotheism. 
There is no amount of sacrifices I can bring. And there is no amount of ritual I can do. And there's no amount of frumkite I can be if I'm an asshole. It is as simple as that. Hoshea is saying, first of all, you must fix the structures in your society that apply justice. But you yourself have to have a deep and understanding and authentic consciousness of how to live like that. Dirshuni vichyu, said Amos, seek me and live. But if we were to pick two words that identify Hoshea, it's his most two famous words. Look, guys, I know you're sitting there going, I know, I know, I know, I know. I know you're sitting there going, oh, what's the prophet Hoshea? Like, really? Just another prophet from the Bible. But you have to realize it is the 14th chapter of the book of Hoshea that is the Haftarah that is read on the Shabbat before Yom Kippur. What are the two words that Hosea tells us that introduce this enormous idea into the world theologically and theosophically? What is this idea? What are those two words? Shuva Yisrael. Return. Return, O Israel. The idea that however bad it's been, within a moment with a shift of consciousness, with an understanding of what's required for authentic, just living, to absolve yourself of this acquisition of power to just be and accept, as Micha is going to put it later, just to go modestly in the world and apply justice, the authentic realization that that can happen in a moment and then the whole thing is wiped clean and you can start again. That is the concept of Teshuvah. Nice, because we're coming up to Elul, we're coming up to Rosh Hashanah. It's interesting to talk about those concepts. But they didn't, they haven't always, they didn't just pop into, well, they kind of did. They came out of Hosea, but they have a very, very long development till we get to the encapsulation of that idea that is going to go on and play a very, very big part in the whole of the prophetic message. But what's essential about Hosea is the transformation from the pagan contractual mindset about the concept of God to this idea that there is only one way in which you can have a relationship with God and that is by ethical living. By absolving yourself from all other gods and by realizing there's only one God in the world, but it's a God that is everywhere and everything, and only if I can create justice and goodness in the world with other people can God be revealed in the world, and I can have a relationship with God. There is no other way. Okay, times. I'm just going to touch for a minute on the outcomes, because there are outcomes. I haven't even spoken about a quarter of wanted to cover tonight. That's because it's a new series and I'm still got to get used to the rhythm and structure and we also had to explain a bit of historical background tonight. Uh, I want you to understand, take away one point. One point is, is that this particular period here of Hosea and Amos that kicks off the literary prophetic tradition in the middle of the minus 700s is the massive transforming moment when we realize as a people that our 
role in humanity is to create structures of justice, is to create ethical living. It is not to accumulate wealth. It is not to accumulate conquest. It is not even really to survive. Our survival is guaranteed. Everyone can chill out and relax their sphincter on that one. God told Abraham, your descendants will be around. And so far, despite repeated attempts to kill us, we are. That's not the main issue. The main issue is how are we living? Hosea and Amos both foresee this tremendous concept of exile that's going to come. They talk about it only in very adumbrated terms because that's not really going to be filled in till the later prophets that are going to come later, what exile is going to mean. But they can see it. And they can see the concept of assimilation amongst the nations. They can see suddenly history is going to stretch out for them in a far greater horizon than they imagined. And the historical outcomes are, of course, that in 732, minus 732, Tiglath, Pileser and others, they do come and they do conquer the Samaria. And they put the king on the flat, causes a political upset in, obviously, the northern kingdom. And from that point on, they're effectively a tribute, a tra- like, a, like a vassal state of Assyria. They're paying tremendous taxes. Ten years later... Uh, they decide they don't want to pay the tax anymore. And of course, the Assyrian rulers such as Sargon II and so on, they come and they, they, just, they don't just destroy the northern kingdom, its political and military structures. They don't just destroy Samaria, which they do. They take the whole of the population, minus whichever people could run across the border to Judah, and many thousands did. But most of the population... They ethnically cleansed the entire area. That's what the Neo-Assyrians did. They weren't, they weren't nice. They weren't nice. They didn't say, ah, we've come, we've conquered you. They actually took you and replaced you and repopulated your inter- homeland with other peoples. And since then, the ten tribes have famously been dispersed. But the prophets tell us that the ten tribes will return. And who would we be to doubt the words of prophets who over two and a half millennia ago were telling us that one day in the far, far distant future I will bring your children back to the land of Israel in a time of trouble. And I will bring them from all four corners of the globe and they will rebuild Jerusalem so that it spills out of its suburbs. Prophets who are capable of talking about those kind of things through their tremendous spiritual insight are not people we should deride when they say there will come a point where you will hear from those ten tribes again. But ultimately they did not heed the lessons of the prophets about the concept of power, military power, spiritual power, psychological power, any power for its own sake, is a corrupting influence in society. And if you have gods whose very ideal is reflected in the fact that they're the ones who are going to give you this power, then oi vavoi, it's all going to come down 
very, very fast. Here's what I believe you should do. And this is my last point. I'm winding up. Here's what I believe should happen. I believe that you should re- come to realize how inadequate this talk is. And here's how I want you to do it. I want you to go home. They're not long books. I want you to read the book of Amos, understanding the historical context we've talked about. I want you to read the book of Hosea and understand. Look at the language. Those of you who can access the Hebrew, I want your mind to be blown and stunned by the way they are expressing these ideas. I want you to look at these books because then you will see the power within them to shift the consciousness of an entire people. We as a nation are in danger, sometimes in the world, of forgetting that we have a problem with power. I'm not talking now necessarily about what some of you think I'm talking about. I'm talking about something else. But we have a problem. Our institutions have a problem with power. They lose touch with the concepts of justice and the concepts of fair play that are built into the social fabric of the type of society that the Torah wants us to build. Yes, there can be rulers. Yes, there can be wealthy people. Yes, there can be people who are very industrious. Some people will always be better off than others. There'll always be poor people and there'll always be wealthy people. There'll always be kings and princes and lords and people who don't get up till 11 in the morning. However, all of them, (laughs) no comment, all of them are subject to systems of justice that the Torah describes. And God says, why can't you just live according to these systems of justice? Next week, we will start talking about how these ideas over the next few decades then become expanded massively into huge movements uh, and what happens as a result of them. But the historical outcomes are that the Northern Kingdom uh, was vanquished. We start to see also, really fascinating, couldn't talk about it tonight, but the rise of the 25th dynasty of, uh, of Egypt together with the push of the Neo-Assyrians uh, from the east and that creates a pressure cooker that uh, is going to explode uh, the whole of um, our um, Yiddish angst out on the, on the world and create the basis of this thought and spiritual revolution that ultimately we are still living with. So thank you for listening to that, guys, and we will continue next week. And I hope that I'll see the numbers. If you thought this was a bit intense, I will chill it down for next week. But I had to get the background across so that I could talk about uh, this idea of the prophetic revolution. These guys, in one second, make no mistake, these guys are radical. These guys are radical. If these guys were the equivalents of what would come along today, you would stone them. You would go, you would write letters. You would say, there's no way I'm going to go to a shul to listen to a person like that. It begs the question, which may take another series to address. This, this is a serious critique of the Humash. It's a serious critique of the, of the extent to which sacrifice and sacrificial practices that point has been noted by scholars obviously there are two approaches to that either it is a clarification of some of the issues in Torah or it is a new kind of development the traditional nominal understanding is that the Torah is very clear on what 
the sacrificial system would look like. And the Nuviim are talking about what it looks like when it's abused. Yep. The Torah doesn't say, I want you to make as many sacrifices as you can. The Torah simply says, if you're going to make a sacrifice for X, Y, or Z reason, this is how you would do it. But uh, what was happening during the Second Temple period, or first Temple, and to some extent even the Second, but certainly during the First Temple period, is that people thought that sacrifice was the fundamental nature of their relationship with God. Everything that Christianity says about Judaism that is wrong is taken from that perspective. They're not reading the prophets upon whom their own saviour is based. They're not reading them. I won't say any more on that because that's also contentious. I don't want to offend people. David, yeah. Just if anyone's interested, there is a very interesting novel by Rabbi called Steinberg called The Prophet's Wife. Which, mm. which is about Hosea's wife? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm assuming it's fairly clean. I'm assuming it's clean. That's why you're advertising it. Yeah. Because, because, the, because the midrash on her is not. <laughs> it's very explicit. Um, yeah, fascinating uh, figure. Yeah. How do you account for such a erudite um, class of people arising out of society, the traditional educating class of those surviving? I mean, you think of the, of the philosophers of Greek. Yeah. I'm, well, it's not a classless society, but are you asking how could someone like Amos, suddenly this peasant, come along? I'll answer that in two ways. One is that just because someone is working the land as a kind of like, you know, working with trees and cattle, doesn't mean they're not intelligent and well-spoken and have high-minded ideas. On the contrary, in, in the ancient world, that was considered a very, very good synthesis to be agrarian, but also to be enlightened. That's kind of the ideal it's like, you know, discussing Shakespeare with your taxi driver, right? On the other hand, also, we're talking about the fact that these people's careers were inspired by God. So we've got the same issue in relation to prophecy. That is, sometimes prophets become prophets because they can suddenly uh, elucidate ideas that would not necessarily have occurred to someone in that station. It is, in fact, that very idea that underscores some of the arguments you see in Islam, for example, is about why Muhammad, who was this kind of illiterate dude, the age of 40, why is he suddenly dictating the Quran, is a kind of a, seen by them as a kind of a mark of his prophetic status. So that may as well have been the case with Amos. But it's also the case that it's not inconsistent. Judaism has always prioritised education, and has always prioritised reading the Torah and understanding how to speak and how to write and how to read. What we understand from the little that's been put together of uh, Amos's background is that he retired back to Yehuda, and then he spent quite a number of years writing out his text. But, uh, and, and interestingly enough, even amongst biblical critics, these texts of Amos and Hosea are seen as very, very old texts. Some of the texts of the prophets... You know, scholars will come along and go, oh, that's not there, that was written much later, it's looking back, it was projecting what it was like, they've written as though some, but not Amos and Hosea and some of these core texts, which just the Hebrew and the, the way that they're looking at concepts, the way expressing concepts, these are very, very early texts in the prophetic tradition, as is, of course, the text of uh, 
the, the most famous of the female prophets who's living back here, Dvorah, who is an earlier type of prophet because she's a leader and a prophet as well. Um, those texts are considered very early. And you can see that there is a development within the prophetic tradition. Or every prophet has their own style, so it's all the words of God, but they're put into a vehicle that's extremely poetic. And some authors are more poetic than others, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yes. Yes, it's very clear from reading between the lines that that is her background. Mm. Very, very personally. That's a brilliant point. And that is the fact that uh, in, in the allegory of his life, his wife is kind of representing the Jewish people or the people of Israel, and he, in fact, is representing God. So he learns about social justice by caring for her and loving her despite all of her infidelities and her heartbreaks. But the way that she's talked about mm. Yeah, she's talked about in very, but she's also talked about in stunning, beautiful terms as well. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to take you to the desert and seduce you. I'm going to give you of the fruit of the vineyards of, of the, I'm going to take you and I'm going to, you know, reveal myself and redeem you in dark places in the desert. And I'm going to carry you and I'm going to bring you and I'm going to restore you. There's a tremendous amount of hope and yearning and love in Hosea. Look, read the second chapter of Hosea. If you don't read the two books tonight. Just read one chapter. Read chapter 2 of the book of Hosea, because that is the one that will blow your mind in terms of the sublimity of how these ideas are expressed. That is the chapter that contains the famous olam. I will betroth you to me forever. And of course, interestingly, while we're on it, and I know we have to finish it, just in that chapter, you will also notice that Hosea outlines an entire ecological program as well. He talks about the ecological future, the ideal ecological future of the earth. And the ideal ecological future of the earth is not, I mean, if he was sitting in those Paris protocols and he was talking to, you know, people today about, about climate change, he would be saying that it is not the case that we have to restructure society so as to account for a changing climate. If we structure our society so that we have equitable distribution of resources and a just application of our society, then nature itself will deign to answer. It will rain when we need it, and it won't when we don't. That is a tremendous act of faith, but that is the ideal to which human society, in their capacity to engineer the world, could do it, but not by objectifying the world and physically manipulating, but by physically manipulating, morally manipulating ourselves and creating a society that is just and that framework. This is a fantastic. So read chapter two, please. Uh, if you read one thing tonight, read chapter two. All right, guys, hopefully I will see you next week. Thank you for listening. To find out more about David Solomon's books, recordings and classes, or to support his work and teachings for just a few dollars a month, visit davidsolomon.online.